You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. For the last few weeks as a church, we've been going through the book of James. And I think pretty much every sermon so far, the speaker has started with a disclaimer about how James is not afraid to make bold statements. And, you know, today's passage is maybe one of his boldest. If there was maybe a top five list of most debated and most misquoted passages in the Bible, I'm guessing this is like number three, number four. Um, but I don't think that this debate is a legitimate cause for dissent in our faith. It's more like a Facebook argument. All the confusion, all the misunderstanding is basically people arguing past each other where they're using the same word, which has a few different definitions, but not recognizing that they're meaning the word differently. So an example of this kind of confusion that I had last week, um, Darcy and I were at a trivia night, and the question came up, what is the longest river in the world? And Darcy had done a little bit of studying beforehand, and he lucky, luckily studied this exact question this exact one. So we confidently wrote down the Nile. We were feeling good. You know, it was an easy one. Good job, Darcy. You know, everything's great. Until they read out the answers. Um, we were quite cheesed when we heard that we got the question wrong. The official answer was the Amazon. And the issue with this question, the reason we were upset, is because longest river can have a few different definitions you know, based on if you include tributaries and where you define where the transition from river to ocean is. And both the Amazon and Nile are correct if you pick the right definition. So this same trivia problem where people are using the same words and meaning different things is very obvious today when you compare the passage that Heidi uh, read and our passage today. So Paul in Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then you compare that to verse 24 of our passage in James, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you just read these, you know, out of context, these are pretty plainly contradictory. We believe in a God of order, uh, we believe that the word of God is true, and for something to be true, it can't just contradict itself. But I think it's clear that as we go through the passage today that these are actually quite aligned. Uh, the issue is that the language is complicated and they're using the same words, but they meant different things. And I think there are some tough passages in the Bible where I can see a few different perspectives on how you can approach a confusing passage and, you know, accept a few different interpretations. But honestly, today is not that day. I think Paul is extremely clear and I think James is pretty clear and this confusion just comes from James using the same word to mean two different things. So before we really get into our passage, I just want to make sure I'm explicit on what Paul means in Ephesians. Right? It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. What Paul is saying is that there is no thing you can do which makes you right with God. Right? It's a gift, it says right there. No amount of works are ever going to be enough to get you saved. It's not like by donating a certain amount of money or helping a certain amount of needy people or never lying or never hurting anyone is going to help one tiny bit. Hebrews 11.6 
says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. No amount of little acts of kindness are going to change that. It's only through faith that we're saved. And I don't think any of that's revolutionary. I think this is preached pretty often here. And I don't think there's a lot of debate in a Bible-believing evangelical church whenever Ephesians 2 comes up. It's our passage today that can cause some confusion and debate. And the crux of that debate is, is the verse 24, right? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This appears to say that Paul is wrong. We need to do stuff. It's not just faith that's going to save us. It appears to say that there's some element of salvation that requires us to do the work. It's not a gift of God. It appears like maybe, just maybe, if you do the right things and have a bit of faith, you're going to be okay. And the issue is that somehow this perspective is one that has stuck culturally. There's a worldview inventory study from 2021 done by a, a Christian university in Arizona, which asked questions about people's view on life. Um, it's in America, but it's, I think Canada would answer pretty similarly. Uh, one statement that they presented was, a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. How many self-identified Christians do you think agreed with this? It's actually like surprisingly high, 58% of self-identified Christians. And that percentage goes way down when you like, you know, look at Christians who believe in the Bible and stuff like that. But it's a clear marker that this, uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't supposed to be a joke, but I guess it kind of was. Uh, <laughs> It's a clear marker that this view is, is pervasive in our culture, right? Like, even, even uh, people who say that they're Christians believe in this. Um, and based on these numbers, there has to be some people here who believe that as well. And if, if that's you today, I'm so happy that you can be here and hear that this is not true, and this is not what James meant. And I can see why this belief is tempting, right? People like being in control or imagining that they are even when they're not. They like the idea of karma, right? What goes around comes around. People don't like hearing that no amount of good deeds is going to make an ounce of difference. But the equally wrong but opposite conclusion here is that you can simply acknowledge that God exists and then your life doesn't have to change one bit. You can do nothing good, sin all the time, and it's all good because you have faith. This is the core misconception that our passage today is fighting against. And it was a common misconception. You can see how Paul's passage in Ephesians, right, saying it's a gift, not a result of works, how that can maybe be misinterpreted this way. But Paul was also clear that this is not what he means when he says faith. He had heard rumblings of people who say, okay, I believe, I'm safe, there's no point in stopping sin or changing my life. So in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? It's an incredulous question. Paul doesn't want us to think that just checking the box of belief is correct. There has to be some kind of change in the way that we live. So thinking of an, an analogy of this, I couldn't help but bring up that today is Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm sure many of you are going to be watching it at some part tonight, maybe just a halftime show. But the, probably the most memorable moment of the season of football this year was about a month ago. The Buffalo Bills were playing the Cincinnati Bengals, and a player on the Bills, DeMar Hamlin, made a pretty routine tackle, got up, and then collapsed a few seconds later. And medical staff rushed onto the field, and the game was delayed and then eventually canceled. And watching that live, it was, it was scary. It wasn't clear whether I just watched someone collapse and then die 
live on TV. Eventually, news came from the hospital that Damar was doing okay, and more information came out about what happened. It turns out that the way that he got hit in the chest, in the exact wrong spot, at the exact wrong millisecond, had literally stopped his heart. So when the medics rushed onto the field to see what was up with him, one of the first things that they did was take his pulse. And feeling nothing there, they knew something was really seriously wrong. At that moment, he was clinically dead on the field. And thankfully, uh, he was able to get CPR and defibrillation, and after about nine minutes, his heart was restarted. But for those nine minutes, he did not have a heartbeat and was like, clinically dead. And so I think that having a heartbeat, having a pulse, is a picture of what James means here. Works is the proof that your faith is alive. Works is the heartbeat of your faith. So in our passage, James uses the word faith when he's talking about two different kinds of faith. I'm going to call them a dead faith and alive faith. He talks about a faith with a heartbeat and one without. And it's important for clarity's sake that when James is using the word faith, we're aware of which definition he's using. Just like Darcy's longest river, right? How we interpret the word faith is going to clear up any confusion between Paul and James. So dead faith is not really what we think of when we think about faith. It's more like knowledge or conceding that something's true. Dead faith is acknowledging that God exists, but only at such a superficial level that it rings hollow in your life. So let's look back at the start of our passage, uh, James 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So it's clear here, when he uses the word faith, this isn't the normal usage of faith, right? This person says they have faith, right? They say they believe, but is just saying that you believe enough? Continuing on. Um, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here, he's reinforcing that this faith is simply a lip service faith. It's a dead faith. There's no heartbeat here. If you're alive, you should have a pulse. If your faith is alive, it should be more than just empty words. I think this is also kind of on the side. This is a practical instruction for us, right? If we see a need and we can fill it, then we should. Um, God can use you to answer a prayer. This can be as little as, you know, providing a meal for a family whose life is crazy or can be as big as like donating an organ. If you genuinely care about a problem and you can do something about it, then you will take action on it. Then we get to verse 19. So it says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's a chilling verse. Um, mental knowledge of our spiritual reality is not enough, right? The demons probably have more knowledge than anyone here does about God, but they hate that reality. And it's possible that we can have a head knowledge of God and still deny him. Simply accepting the fact that God is our creator and that he exists is not sufficient. This belief has to be more than just fact memorization. It should be transformative in your life. And if you're looking for examples where people 
believe in something, but it has absolutely no impact on their life, then you need to look no further than politics. Politicians seem to be constantly publicly supporting one cause than in private doing the exact opposite. So, in the 1920s, this is one of my favorite um, hypocrisy stories. In the 1920s, the U.S. president, Warren G. Harding, voted for prohibition, which was the complete banning of alcohol in the states. So all alcohol is banned, and he's quite clearly against um, alcohol in his speeches. Uh, listen to how he talks about people who are breaking the prohibition law and drinking. He says, Let men who are rending the moral fiber of the republic through easy contempt for the prohibition law because they think it restricts their personal liberty, remember that they set the example and breed a contempt for law which will ultimately destroy the republic. So these are some very strong words for the people who are breaking the law by drinking. But his belief in this law did not impact his life one iota. Uh, reading directly off his Wikipedia page here, um, Harding's lifestyle at the White House was fairly unconventional compared to his predecessor. Upstairs at the White House, Harding allowed bootleg whiskey to be served freely to his guests during after-dinner parties and at a time when the president was supposed to enforce prohibition. One witness stated that trays with bottles containing every imaginable brand of whiskey stood about. So, Warren G. Harding may have had some kind of faith in this prohibition of alcohol, but his faith was dead because it did not impact his life whatsoever. So if we go back to our supposed contradiction between Paul and James, we know that Paul is actually aligned with James when it comes to dead faith. He maybe doesn't use the same words as James, but Paul agrees that a real faith is going to be an active one. In his letter to the Galatians, uh, which is uh, chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For in Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Being a Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. What matters is an active faith, one that's migrated from your head to your heart, that's working through love. So, if we think about what we're claiming, if a, if a dead faith is just some kind of concession that God exists but doesn't change you, that means that a real faith, an alive faith, is going to have an effect in your life. Let's look at verse 18 of our passage. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What James is saying is you can't really separate a living faith and the works it produces. He's challenging this hypothetical person. How can you show me your faith if it does nothing? With works as the heartbeat of our faith, it's like trying to prove that a body is alive when you can't find a pulse. So let's see. So we see that James is saying that a real faith, an alive faith, is one which will result in works. So let's step back for a moment because this is a really big claim. What James is claiming, along with many others throughout the New Testament, is that a genuine faith in God, one that goes beyond just acknowledging his existence, will actually make visible changes in your life. It's going to change you at the core, and that change will actually result in you behaving differently. This is because we've received the Holy Spirit, and he changes the way you live. Paul calls these changes, these works, the fruit of the Spirit. Right? In Galatians 5, Paul explains the fruit of the Spirit. He says that our natural inclination to sin will be in conflict 
with our supernatural inclination towards love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I think gentleness I missed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a live faith is going to cause you to do things that you would never have done without faith. And it's also going to prevent you from doing things you would have done without faith. This is the, what the works that James is talking about, right? Both denying our sinful desires and being guided to holy ones. So does an alive faith mean that you're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Um, you're going to continue to fall short, but the difference is now is that you'll care that you fall short. It'll be important to you to avoid sin and ask for forgiveness when you fail. There will be new desires to serve God and others in ways that you would naturally never want to do. So let's look at the two examples of this that James gives us in our passage. His two examples aren't comprehensive, but they give us two principles about a real, alive faith. So verses 21 to 23 are talking about Abraham and what happened in Genesis 22. The short version of the story is that Abraham is a, a child with his wife, Sarah, and this kid, Isaac, and he's very precious to Abraham. So shockingly, he's told by God to sacrifice his son, Abraham. And as important as Isaac is to Abraham, he's willing to do it. And just as he's about to kill Isaac, God stops Abraham and provides a substitution in the form of ram. Isaac is saved and Abraham proves that he's willing to lose the person he loves most for God. So let's see what James says about this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. What James is saying is that the story of Abraham wouldn't be an example of strong faith without the works that he did. The fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac for God is the proof of his faith. Abraham could say all he wanted, you know, God is the number one priority in his life, but the reason he's held up as an example of the strong faith is because his actions proved that. So the first takeaway that James gives us is that alive, real faith is sacrificial. We as humans are naturally greedy, but the Holy Spirit working in us gives us a passion and desire to sacrifice what we have. So what does this look like in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, if we look at a survey of the top five uh, things that people care about in today's culture, uh, it's family and children, occupation and career, material well-being, friends and community, physical and mental health. All five of these things are great things. But an alive faith isn't locked onto these and unwilling to budge or sacrifice anything for God. You can love your family while still having them be second priority to God. You can give up the job you love because it's becoming an idol in your life. You can donate money even when it's not easy to. One thing that I find very cool and, you know, it's a bit of a nerdy thing, but this Holy Spirit given desire uh, to be sacrificial is actually a little bit provable. If you look at data from Canada and the U.S., you can consistently see that Christians donate more to money to charities than others and by a, a, a large margin. And even if you subtract out all the religious donations, so anything to churches or, um, you know, Christian organizations and stuff, uh, just looking at secular charities, Christians still donate more to those than uh, non-believers do. So an alive faith 
is sacrificial. Let's look now at the story of Rahab, which James covers in verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So in this story, the Israelites are out in the wilderness, and they come up to the city called Jericho, and they send some spies to scout it out. And the spies happen to meet Rahab, and she's heard of the God of the Israelites and has faith in him and decides to, pr- to protect the spies. So when the king of Jericho finds out that the spies went to Rahab's house, he confronts her, but she's bold in this moment. She lies to the king while the spies are hiding in her house. Hey, they went, they went that way. And then when the king's army has gone off looking for him, she lets him escape uh, out of her window. If she believed in God, but in this moment was too scared to act on it and ratted the Israelites out, she would not be an example of strong faith. But instead, she stands up to the king and becomes an example of the faith by the works that her faith caused. So, the second takeaway that James gives us is that an alive faith is bold. When push comes to shove, do we take the safe and easy way out of a situation, or do we stand up for God and do something that's scary to us? I think most commonly in our lives, this looks like going against the crowd. It might be as simple as shutting down a gossipy conversation among friends or standing up against some unethical practice at work. But boldness in our faith is a sure sign that our faith is alive. So, let's close on the final verse of our passage here. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James here is asking you to check the pulse of your faith. And when you're honest with yourself, there are three buckets you can find yourself in. First, you can be someone whose faith has actually changed how you live. Your faith's heart is beating. That is such a special reality that God is actually molding you into what he wants you to be. This passage in James should be an encouragement to continue seeking the Holy Spirit and to continue to allow his work through you. Secondly, you can be someone whose faith is dead. There is no pulse. You believe in a superficial way, but you haven't allowed that truth to become the core of who you are. I hope that James' words would awaken you to that reality and that your belief would permeate into your heart and that the Holy Spirit would be transformative in your life, that you wouldn't feel forced to do works, but that the Holy Spirit would awaken in you a passion and desire to live like God would have have you live. Finally, you could be someone who doesn't have any faith whatsoever, right? Dead faith or alive faith is a meaningless distinction. If we're comparing it to the heartbeat of faith, any works you do are purely the result of your own desire, like a disembodied heart in a jar beating for some kind of science experiment. I pray that God would awaken you to the reality of his glory and that you could experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. James's message here, that works are so strongly tied to faith that any real faith will necessarily produce works. That could be a hard thing to hear. It could be hard if you misconstrue it to mean you need to do X number of things to be a real Christian. It could be even harder if you understand it and realize that your knowledge of God hasn't done anything in your life. 
But looking at it from the other perspective, we see what a wonderful promise this is. That a real belief in God will actually transform us. That the Holy Spirit will be actively changing our desires and wishes to align closer to God's. And that these changes, this growth, is a confirmation of the authenticity of our faith given to us by God to encourage us. What a wonderful gift that is. Let me pray. Um, God, uh, thank you for your passage here in, in James. Um, I pray that uh, today everyone uh, would walk out of here with an awareness of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Um, God, I, I just pray that we can recognize the work that you're doing and that this work can be a confirmation and a proof of the reality of our faith. And I pray for those here who have a dead faith or no faith at all, pray that their eyes would be open to the transformative power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.